this week on the Backtable Podcast. All of these tools are sort of risk assessment tools. You know, we've we've now, you know, branched out from do you have prostate cancer or not to try to assess the risk. If you have low-grade prostate cancer and low risk, you know, more likely than not, you don't need to do anything. That's where this evolution and over, you know, my 34 years of practicing, I've really seen this change. And like everything else, you know, things change. I mean, when when I first finished my residency and did my fellowship in St. Louis, we were still doing ureterolithotomies, making an incision in the ureter to take a stone out. I mean, we wouldn't think of that today in 2023. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. Now, a quick word from our sponsors. If your healthcare practice involves detecting or treating prostate cancer, you already know that conventional screening methods are not as reliable or effective as needed. Digital rectal exams and PSA screening both have limitations for delivering optimal results. That's why Exosome Diagnostics created the non-invasive ExoDX prostate test. It analyzes key molecular signatures in a urine sample and provides actionable information about a patient's risk of having high-grade prostate cancer. Designed for men 50 and over with a PSA in the gray zone of 2 to 10 nanograms per milliliter, the ExoDX prostate test returns a score showing the patient's risk of clinically significant prostate cancer. It has been used in more than 70,000 patients with extensive clinical validation. Clinical studies show that the test can help avoid 27% of unnecessary biopsies in patients with PSA levels in the gray zone. The test is covered by Medicare and private insurers and is now available with a convenient at-home collection kit. To learn more, please visit exosomedx.com. That's E-X-O-S-O-M-E-D-X.com. Now, back to the show. The Jose Silva is your host this week, and I'm happy to introduce our guest, Dr. David Albala. He completed his medical school training at Michigan State University and went on to complete his surgical residency at the Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center. Following this, Dr. Albala went on to, to do a fellowship in endurology at Washington University Medical Center in St. Louis, Missouri, under the direction of Ralph B. Clayman. At Washington University, was part of the team that performed the first laparoscopic nephrectomy in humans. So that's very good accomplishment. Thank you. Currently, he's on the board of directors of the Large Urology Group Practice Association, or LUPA. He is chief of urology at Krauss Hospital in Syracuse, New York. Dr. Abala, Dave, welcome to Backtable. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Perfect. So today we're going to talk about prostate cancer screening and, and genomic testing. Can you walk us through your path in terms of prostate cancer screening? Uh, in the, I know that there's been changes in the guidelines over the years. So can you walk us through since your early days in residency up to this point? Sure. Well, thanks for, again, having me, Jose. And, you know, prostate cancer is really an interesting disease state to study. And, you know, over the years, we've learned so much and things have changed dramatically. You know, when I first started my training, you know, people would come in with advanced prostate cancer 
And that's right when PSA, you know, was being brought into the marketplace and the United States FDA approved it for prostate cancer screening back in the 1980s. And um, we used this blood test. It was a, a simple blood test, relatively inexpensive, that could be done on everybody that walked through the door. And we started to diagnose more and more men with prostate cancer. And what was really interesting is that as PSA testing became more popular, we actually started to see, you know, more patients getting treated and the disease, the number of patients that were dying was starting to drop off. So you might say that PSA was a, a great test. It still is a great test that's used and really is the first test that we use to screen patients for prostate cancer. But over time, what we started to see is that, you know, as we understood prostate cancer more, there's a group of patients that have prostate cancer that may be sort of indolent. The disease grows very, very slowly. These patients, you know, were diagnosed with prostate cancer and perhaps some of them didn't even need to be treated. So we saw this mortality starting to decrease, but we also saw that we were starting to perhaps overtreat a number of patients. So you weigh both sides of the penny, if you will, the advantage of diagnosing men with prostate cancer, but also treating patients perhaps doesn't need to get treated for prostate cancer. So that continued on in the early 2000s. And then the United States Preventative Task Force in 2012 really came out with a controversial decision. And that decision was that PSA testing may not have any value. And they they looked at some studies, and this task force essentially recommended against PSA testing. And, you know, as urologists, we diagnose prostate cancer two ways, one with a digital rectal exam, secondly, with a PSA test. Now, you might say, geez, the digital rectal exam should help us identify these patients. But if I lined 100 men up with prostate cancer and did a digital rectal exam, I would detect prostate cancer in less than 50 of those individuals. So our finger is not a great screening test, but when you combine it with the blood test, you actually then are able to make the diagnosis and make recommendations of biopsy. So the PSA test doesn't diagnose prostate cancer. It's used to give us information on if a patient has an abnormal finding or the PSA is elevated, then we would recommend you know patients undergo biopsies. Now, a, a biopsy of the prostate typically has traditionally been putting a small probe, an ultrasound probe in the rectum, taking some pictures of the prostate, and then randomly biopsying different areas within the prostate. So it's a random biopsy. And then over the years, we then have started to use different tools. Um, and in particular, MRI has come into the forefront in which we can get a lot of good clinical information from an MRI. It's much more sensitive in picking up, you know, these cancers that may be more aggressive. And using MRI techniques or an MRI fusion biopsy, we can actually target an abnormal area within the prostate. So once the task force came out with this recommendation, all of a sudden we started to see our prostate cancer death rates start to increase because we were detecting less cancers. The real goal of PSA was was to identify these individuals at an earlier stage and such that we could recommend different treatments. The United States Task Force then re-looked at this data 
went from a, a D rating, which essentially says do not do the test, to a C rating. And, you know, that brought into the era of what we call shared decision making. So when a, a physician meets with a patient, you know, you sit down and talk about risk factors. And, you know, with prostate cancer, there's a variety of risk factors. You know, age is, is one risk factor. Um, race, if you're African-American, you have a much higher incidence of prostate cancer. Family history, if your brother or your father, you have a two to threefold increase risk of prostate cancer. Genetic markers, you know, BRCA testing, BRCA1 and BRCA2, if you have these types of mutations, you know, you do have potentially a higher risk of prostate cancer. You know, other clinical factors, you know, diet has been studied, chemical exposure has been studied, maybe less so than, than you know, age, race, or family history or genetic mutations. But combining all this data, what we want to try to do today in 2013 is identify those patients that have risk factors, do appropriate biopsies, do not do biopsies that aren't appropriate in individuals. So the PSA, you know, test has evolved. You know, we used to use a cutoff of four. If you had a PSA less than four when I trained, you know, the likelihood of prostate cancer was low. If it was above four, the increased risk of prostate cancer existed. We then used markers like PSA density, comparing it to the volume of the prostate, the PSA reading. We then developed what we call age-specific PSA ranges. So an individual that's, say, 40 years old, his PSA, a normal PSA, should be you know, 2.5 or less. If you compare that to a 75-year-old man, his normal PSA is up to 6.5. So the one shoe doesn't fit every single patient. So over the years, we've learned a significant amount of information about PSA, but we've also learned that it's not the ideal test. It's not a cancer-specific test. So we have to combine clinical data. And then recently, we started to see the use of biomarkers come into helping us identify patients that are at these higher risk you know, patient populations. So we can use a variety of biomarkers, not only in the blood, but in the urine, to try to identify patients that have a high risk of prostate cancer. So there's been this tremendous evolution. When I first finished my residency, if you were 40 years old and you had a family history of prostate cancer or you were African-American, that's when you got a PSA and a digital rectal exam. And then if you were 45, any individual, Caucasian, no family history, those are when men got screened. And over the years, what we've seen is perhaps we've over-screened patients and trying to identify patients with prostate cancer. And the United States Preventative Task Force made urologists look and say, you know, maybe we should relook at our guidelines. And um, I think today, the current guidelines are such that if you're 40 to 45 and you have a family history or you're African-American, that's reasonable. And then for all others, patients starting at age 55 is when these individuals should get screened for prostate cancer. But again, it's a shared decision. You come in, you get examined by your, your physician, and you have a discussion about this, and you make a shared decision. And then the first test that needs to be done, and our guidelines suggest this, is, is a, a routine PSA test. And once you get a PSA test, if it's elevated, you can repeat it to make sure that it's a, a valid test. 
if it is elevated, then you know there are a number of options. You can go right to biopsy if you want. You can do a biomarker test, you know, a urine-based test or a blood test to try to pare down. Maybe there's a group of these patients that have slightly elevated PSAs that you don't need to do biopsies in, that these patients don't have any risk. And then you can also integrate MRIs in that discussion as well. And Dave, in terms of the screening, what have you seen in your community after that, the message from the task force? Do you saw that then primary care physicians stopped doing it? Yeah, primary care physicians in 2012 all of a sudden stopped doing any PSA testing. Not only did they stop the PSA testing, but they also stopped doing the digital rectal exams. So now you're, you're essentially dismantling the only effective way of identifying prostate cancer. And right after the task force made those recommendations, if you look back at the data and the mortality rates, you start to see a spike. So what happens is you do PSA testing and all of a sudden the mortality drops, you stop the PSA testing, and then all of a sudden the mortality starts to increase. And so there clearly is a direct relationship. There's been numerous papers published, you know, and that's why I think the United States task force went back and said, you know, maybe you should discuss this with your physician. Now, many urologists feel that the backbone of prostate cancer is PSA and testing and doing this testing, and we feel it should be done in appropriate patients. We also feel we should do biopsies in appropriate patients because there is a risk with a biopsy, infection, bleeding. Those are the, the biggest risks with biopsies. But if we can identify those high-risk patients, perhaps we can defer biopsies in patients, even if the PSA is slightly elevated. Now, remember one other thing that you don't have to have an elevated PSA to have prostate cancer. We see patients that, that have normal PSAs but are diagnosed with prostate cancer. So the test is not perfect in identifying cancers in patients. And when you combine it with other things, digital rectal exam, biomarkers, MRI, you increase that sensitivity. Especially you mentioned those patients that have low PSA, that have cancer. I always ask the patient if they have family members. And what I have seen, some families, uncles, brothers, they tend to have low PSAs and all of them have cancer. So definitely that, that, that family history is very important. It's no question, you know, and race is important. I mean, you know, not only is the prostate cancer more common in African-Americans, but the mortality rate is higher in African-Americans. So when you look at Caucasians versus African-Americans, you see that if you're an African-American male and you develop prostate cancer, you have a much greater likelihood of dying of prostate cancer than a Caucasian. And that's, I mean, and like you mentioned, I usually not only they have higher incidence of cancer, but also higher incidence of bad cancer. So high, so we're talking about high gleasons. Exactly. The, the cancers are more aggressive. And Dave, the other thing I want to mention also in terms of the guidelines, they talk about the asymptomatic patient. So, I mean, from my understanding, any patient regardless, I mean, we're not going to do it on a 20-year-old, but 43, 45, regardless of their race, if they have some symptoms, you should at least look into it, right? No question. And, you know, there are different conditions that cause symptoms in the prostate. The three big prostate diseases are BPH, which is the most common, you know, in a large prostate. You know, these men have difficulty with urination, urgency, frequency, going to the bathroom, getting up at night. You know, in the younger population, prostatitis is kind of the black sheep of prostate diseases, if you will. But it's extremely common in younger men. So when, when a 25-year-old man comes in 
and he has burning urgency frequency, you know, you have to think prostatitis and not prostate cancer. Typically, it's rare to see prostate cancer before the age of 40. I mean, if you have some rare tumors, but, you know, it's not a disease of younger people. You know, prostate cancer, it's interesting that when you look and see the incidence of prostate cancer, it really increases with age. You know, there was a study that was done that looked at, you know, the development of prostate cancer. And if you're 70 to 80, you have about a 70% chance of getting prostate cancer. Now, not all of these men die of prostate cancer. Some of these diseases, this disease state is, is indolent. You know, these people live in harmony with their disease. And that's really what spurred on urologists to think about doing active surveillance in men. So if you're diagnosed with prostate cancer, when I first started practicing, these patients would undergo robotic, radical prostatectomies, open operations or radiation. Today, we look at the Gleason score, we try to determine how aggressive these tumors are, and based on that, we now can use genomic profiling in these patients to say, geez, this is a tumor that you know, is unlikely to cause a problem. You know, The genomic markers is kind of like if you have two race cars, if you have a Corvette and a Volkswagen, and you know nothing about cars, you'll say the cars are going to go about the same speed. But if you lift up the hood... Under the Corvette, you're going to see this gigantic engine, and you'll see a, a putt-putt engine in a Volkswagen. You're going to realize that the, the Corvette's going to go much faster. And that's what these genetic you know, studies, there's been this you know, really blossoming of knowledge, understanding the genetics and the genomics of prostate cancer. And there are tests that are available, much like what we see in breast cancer, to identify, is this an aggressive tumor? And, and really what these genomic tests do is identify the, the wolf in sheep's clothing. So in other words, if you have a Gleason 6 disease, which is the most common Gleason score tumor that we see, usually you know you think that many of these patients can go on active surveillance. But if you do genomic testing and you find that the genomic test says that this is a, you know, a wolf and not a sheep, those are the patients that you want to treat. And so we have commercially available tests just like in breast cancer. Prostate cancer mimics breast cancer in a lot of ways, you know, with the genomic testing, the genetic testing that's done. You know, we're just a little behind the women. They're just a little smarter than us. And, you know, they've, the understanding in breast cancer is really blossomed. And we're now just on the tail edge of understanding genetic makeup of these tumors and understanding BRCA genes and so on and so forth. So there's a lot to unpack in prostate cancer. The real big question is, Go in. If you're in a high-risk group, you need to get screened and tested. If you're not, go in and have a discussion with your physician. And then if you do get screened and you have an elevated PSA, you know you need to sit down with him and decide what's the best path for you. Should you get a biopsy? Should you do a biomarker, You know, a urine-based biomarker or a blood-based biomarker to determine if you should have a biopsy? And then obviously an MRI is also uh, on the table here. So Dave, so in your practice, what are you doing? Let's say that patient has a PSA, 60-year-old PSA 5. What will be your next step? So obviously, I'll have them come in. I'll do a digital rectal examination. If the PSA, you know, all of a sudden jumped up, I might repeat the PSA to see if it's really just, you know, a spurious value. For example, men with prostatitis can have really high PSAs. So I want to make sure that men doesn't have prostatitis and 
usually when I do a rectal exam, I can feel a boggy or soft prostate that, that would suggest prostatitis. And then, you know, then here is where the decision, here's where the fork in the road is. Should I do a biomarker or should I do an MRI to try to help me identify men at higher risk? And again, it's, it's dealer's choice on how you want to do this. I actually think the biomarkers are really a nice way to go personally. And in my practice, I like to use a biomarker. There's a blood biomarker, for example, like the, the 4K or the Prostate Health Index. There's a number of commercially available blood tests that you can use. For, for example, the 4K looks at sort of four isoenzymes of prostate cancer, four subtypes of BPH. And when we look at those isoenzymes, you'll get a score. And if it's elevated, those patients have a higher risk of prostate cancer. The hot area right now is, is using exosomes, which are these tiny little you know, vesicles, extracellular vesicles that are released in prostate cancer patients. And what we can do is collect these exosomes in individuals and then analyze them. And if you have a preponderance or a surplus of these small little, you know, RNA, DNA, protein particles, you may have a higher risk of prostate cancer. Now, the urine biomarker area is kind of really expanded. There's a number of commercially available tests. They typically are used in patients that have PSAs between 2 and 10. So the FDA guidelines have put in place men typically over 50 or older that have PSAs between 2 and 10. So in your individual that's 60 years old, comes in with that, you know, elevated PSA. After I do my exam, and if I, obviously, if, if I feel an abnormality on the prostate, I may go right to an MRI. But given that in most of these patients, the prostate feels completely normal, I like using a urine biomarker. I've used blood biomarkers. I've used urine biomarkers. And I like using the, the exosome DX test, personally. I think it's a simple test to do. There is a test called Select MDX, which is a similar test that, you know, these tests are different in some respects that the select test um, uses clinical information. So you might say, geez, you know, is there a family history of prostate cancer? You know, have you had a prior biopsy, so on and so forth? The exosome test actually does not. So there's a difference in how the markers, you know, are, are, are um, utilized, number one. Number two, to obtain a, a select MDX test, you have to do a digital rectal examination. The reason for that is you're trying to release from the prostate, you know, this marker that's tested in that select MDX test. What's different about the exosome test is you don't have to do a digital rectal examination. And I, I think that's a little nicer for the patient. When COVID hit and we weren't seeing these patients in the office, the company pivoted to doing this home collection kit. So I could do a televisit just like we're sitting here talking today through a video. If I say, geez, you know, Jose, you have a, an elevated PSA of five, you know, you're over 50 years old. You weren't coming into the office for a digital rectal exam, but I could send the home kit to you and we could then do this exosome test by just pinging a special apparatus sending the, the specimen off to Boston to be analyzed. And then that would essentially be a risk evaluation tool that I could say, your exosome test came back at 25, which is above the cutoff of 15.6. 
you know, the negative predictive value and the sensitivity are quite high, above 15.6, and you're a young guy, I want to, I want to do a biopsy on you. Whereas if it came back below 15.6, I would say, you know, the likelihood of you having prostate cancer is extremely low, and I don't think we need to do a biopsy. What's nice is, you know, the exosome test has been validated. There's been two large clinical trials. One was in JAMA Oncology in 2016. The other one was in European Urology. Over a thousand patients were used in the validation study. And essentially what these studies showed is if I do this, I can reduce the number of biopsies I do in individuals by 27%. So think about that. If you have an elevated PSA, and we do this test, 30% or a third of 100 patients may not need to get a biopsy done. And I'll be confident that they don't have prostate cancer, high-grade prostate cancer. So in, you know, today's, when we think about prostate cancer, in the past, we've thought about prostate cancer as a single entity. In other words, if you had prostate cancer, it was bad and we needed to treat you. We now look at it a little bit differently that we know that people can have low-grade prostate cancer, live a perfectly normal life, and not have to get treated at all. And it's really interesting. You know, I was a professor at Duke for 11 years, and I essentially built my career on doing robotic prostatectomies. I've done over 2,200 robotic prostatectomies in my career. And when I was at Duke, my active surveillance rates, or patients that would come in with low-grade disease, was about 17%. So if the likelihood, if you had prostate cancer and came and saw me back in 2005, you know, I would say, you got a Gleason 6 tumor, we need to take your prostate out, and you would be operated on by me. That would be a good thing, because you'd, you'd do pretty well. But it may not be the right thing. And now, I look at my active surveillance rates, and they're 45%. So the likelihood, if you came in with a Gleason 6, average tumor, not a lot of disease, you know, I'm going to tell you what we're going to do is more likely than not just follow you. And you may exist and go on for your whole lifetime without any kind of treatment. You know, I, I tell patients, if you go on an active surveillance protocol, a third of patients eventually in their prostate cancer journey are going to get treated with either surgery or radiation, you know, or focal therapy. There's so many different options today. But two-thirds of patients, 66 out of 100, are going to be able to go their whole life without any kind of treatment for their prostate cancer. Yeah, and if you're following that one-third, but you can buy a couple of years without any treatment or without risk of metastatic disease, I mean, I guess it's a win for the patient because you don't have to live with the possible side effects of either radiation or surgery. No question, and there are side effects with those. But, you know, getting back to the biopsies, here's a test that reduces almost a third of patients from getting an unnecessary biopsy. You know, I've done a lot of biopsies in my career. And, you know, I've been practicing for 30, almost 34 years now. I remember when I first started doing prostate biopsies, I started my career out at Loyola University in Chicago. We'd stick an ultrasound probe in. We wouldn't use any anesthetic and we'd do these biopsies. And it was cruel punishment to these men. You know, they would be jumping off the table you know, over the years, we've been a little kinder. We, we now use lidocaine to do a prostate block, but it's still uncomfortable. There's no question. And if you can avoid that number of biopsies, and here we have a test that does that, and it's a simple test. You know, when I look at new tests, 
there are five things to me that make a difference between how to understand, uh, uh, you know, should I use this test or not? I look at the efficacy of the test. You know, does the test perform in a way I want it to perform? In other words, if I do an exosome test, is it efficacious to the patient? And one could argue, yes, you know, it reduces the number of unnecessary biopsies. You know, what are the side effects? You know, there's not a lot of side effects from collecting a urine test. There are side effects if you do a prostate biopsy, you know, infection, bleeding are the biggest things. And patients have died in the past from prostate biopsies. So there is, that risk is really low. That risk still exists. What's the ease of doing the procedure or biopsy or whatever test you're doing? You know, a urine-based test where a patient can do it in his home, pretty nice to do. It's simple. He just pees in a little cup and you're done. Regarding the results of the exosome DX, the closer you are to 100, the more chances you have a high-grade cancer? Is that how it's read? The higher the score, the more likely of a high-grade prostate cancer is going to be detected. So if you have a, an exosome test that's, that's 10 and you have an exosome patient that comes in and it's 50, he has about a 50% chance of high-grade prostate cancer. It's a, almost a one-to-one ratio up to 50%. And then you start to see it plateau off. So if you come in and your exosome's about 30, they have about a 30% chance of a high-grade prostate cancer. And we define high-grade prostate cancer as a Gleason 7 or higher. So Gleason 6 is really not considered you know, a high-grade prostate cancer. We use the term low-risk prostate cancer or low-grade prostate cancer. So we're talking about group two or above or intermediate risk above or above. Exactly. And Dave, in terms of, you mentioned the multiparametric MRI. How do you integrate that to your practice? Are you using MRI fusion biopsies or what are you doing? We are. And, and, you know, again, this has been a significant evolution and change in the way we think of things. For a number of years, the best way to biopsy was doing a transrectal ultrasound. I mean, I remember when I was a resident, we would take patients to the operating room and do perineal biopsies, put our finger in, do it maybe either transrectal or transperineal and essentially biopsy, you know, just putting, and, and, and we tried not to stick our fingers and have, you know, finger tissue and the biopsy specimen, you know, and then ultrasound came along and that kind of changed the dynamics. We could image, we could stick a needle in, but an ultrasound provided a random biopsy. In other words, you wouldn't know exactly where you were doing the biopsy. You know, it's maybe right apex or right base or whatever. And then MRI fusion biopsies came in and, and that again, changed the playing field. In those biopsies, you could do the MRI and it became a targeted biopsy. So you could aim, when you fuse the images on the MRI with the ultrasound, you could target a specific abnormality that you saw on the MRI with the ultrasound so you were sure to get that tissue. And that's the difference. So even up to a couple of years ago, we were still doing regular transrectal ultrasound biopsies because many insurance companies would only approve it if you had a transrectal ultrasound and it was negative and the PSA kept rising. They've changed their guidelines now. And I think, you know, I go exclusively to MRI fusion biopsies. I'm a believer in the technology. There is a cost with the MRIs and it's much higher than with an ultrasound, but I think the biopsies are better quality. Plus, you also have a record of where the biopsies were taken. So in other words, if you come in and I do a biopsy 
and then your PSA fluctuates a little bit and then goes up again, I can pull your MRI up. I can see exactly where we biopsied. And if you have a new lesion, it shows me where the biopsies were the first time. So it's, it's very useful information. And Dave, in your practice, are you do, using both? You're doing the MRI and the exosome DX? I do. My, my workflow algorithm is PSA test, repeated if necessary. And then men age 50 and higher that have a PSA between 2 and 10, those individuals, I'll get an exosome test. If the test is less than 15.6, I'll say, I'll see you back in six months and repeat the PSA. If it's above 15.6, I'll set those patients up for an MRI fusion biopsy. We get the MRI, and then we can target any abnormalities that are seen on the MRI. So that's my workflow. You could do it the other way. You could do MRIs and then do the exosome test. So there's different variations, but you know we just recently wrote a paper showing how layering biomarkers with MRIs really does provide enhanced information to the clinician to diagnose prostate cancer. So I've been doing it the other way around. So back in COVID, I started doing the MRI. And since I've been doing MRI, I got it. But I get a lot of patients that are reading from the radiologist that says chronic prostatitis, but the PSA continues to creep up. So so last couple of mo- months, I started using exosome DX in the practice. And most of those patients, I will say they are the index is more than 15.6. So those patients that, let's say the MRI is negative, yeah. but the exosome DX is positive or more than 15.6, are you doing random biopsies? Are you doing a saturation biopsies? What are you doing with those? So again, you know, a, a rule of thumb based on clinical information is up to 50%. If your exosome test is 35, there's about a 35% chance of a high-grade prostate cancer. So you know, that's where you have to kind of use a little bit of clinical judgment. If it's 17 and the patient is 78, you may say, listen, I, you know, I'm not going to really worry about this. You're going to act differently with an exosome, a score of 20 in a 55-year-old versus, you know, a 75-year-old. So you use a little bit of clinical judgment. I like that that one-to-one relationship, you know, kind of really holds true for me. I can tell you if the exosome test is below 15.6, the likelihood of a bad prostate cancer, a high-grade, grade group 2, or higher prostate cancer, extremely low. The beauty of the exosome is the negative predictive value, i.e. those patients that have numbers below 15.6 really probably have a very, very low risk of prostate cancer. And the sensitivity, it's much better. This is much better than PSA testing. It's much better than using the you know calculators, the prostate cancer prevention calculator, the European calculator for detecting prostate cancer. I like this test because it's simple and I can do it and patients do it at home. And then I can set up a video visit and then if it's elevated, then I will do the biopsy in those patients. So if it's elevated, you will do the MRI first to see if there's a targeted lesion that you can biopsy, but you already are going to do the biopsy regardless. If the number is just slightly elevated, I may not do the biopsy again, depending on the age and using that clinical information. So, but, you know, remember MRIs have, there's a lot of variability with MRIs. You know, it depends on reader subjectivity, the negative predictive value. If you have a very small lesion, if it's less than a centimeter lesion on the MRI, that's going to be a much harder cancer to detect. The location 
the multilaterality and focality of these tumors. So there's a lot of issues that go in with MRIs. I mean, there are many people that hang their hats on MRIs, but again, it's it's not 100% technology or we'd all be doing MRIs. We use them a lot. They're a useful test, but they're not 100% foolproof. And probably more expensive, the MRI rather than the urine test. The urine test, I believe, is actually a little bit higher. Again, I don't know the cost of the urine test, but you know what's interesting is these now, the biomarker, you know, exosome DX is in the CC, NCCN guidelines. You know, it's paid by Medicare. Many insurance companies, private insurers pay for this test. So like any new test, you know, I talked about this earlier, you know, looking at efficacy, side effects, ease of use, cost, and then durability. Those are the five things. When I see a new technology, if it's say BPH, I ran the FDA trial for, for the low energy microwave. You know, it was great on efficacy. We got good results. The side effects, it was pretty minimal, easy to do. You know, the cost was reasonable, but where it failed, it was durability. And after a number of years, three to five years, these patients all became symptomatic again. So when I see a new technology, whether it's a, a urine-based blood, a urine test, a blood test, you know, a new procedure, in my head, I think of these five categories and I say, does it check the box? And to me, the exosome test checks those boxes and it's, I've used it and integrated it into my workflow. I mean, you, you convinced me. I already use it, but I'm going to change the way I use it. Like I mentioned, I use it after the MRI because I was already doing the MRI, but definitely probably it's, it's easier. Patients do it at home. So I'll probably start doing it the other way around. And also I can start doing less MRIs and it I can rule out patients already if they have a low, P a low uh, index score. It's a great adjuvant you know, marker to use with the tools that we have to try to diagnose prostate cancer. Again, there are other tests. There's blood tests out there. There's urine, other urine tests. You're old enough to know PCA3, where we'd go in and massage these men with their prostate. You know, what I like about this test is we don't have to do that. And, it, and it, the validation study really have shown, you know, that it can reduce not only patients that are undergoing an initial biopsy. Jim McKiernan from Columbia wrote a very nice paper showing in patients that have had a negative biopsy, first biopsy, that you can use this to try to enhance and identify more patients that potentially might have had prostate cancer that was missed. So these are really the risks at two populations that the test is approved for, patients undergoing initial biopsies and patients that have had a negative first biopsy that you want to decide, should I do a repeat biopsy on? And Dave, you mentioned that there's data out there between comparing the MRI with or using it in conjunction, the MRI with the exosome DX. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yeah, we, we just published, well, we've just submitted a paper. It's not published. At, we haven't received any, any word on the paper. But looking at layering biomarkers. So, you know, the first biomarker, PSA is a biomarker. It's a, it's a blood test. And if that blood test is elevated, if then we add the exosome test to that, and that's elevated, then we can enhance the detection of prostate cancer by doing an MRI. And when you combine all those three pieces of clinical information, it's going to be much higher value in detecting prostate cancer than just using a single test alone, whether it's MRI or PSA. We know PSA is not you know, a prostate cancer-specific test. It's a good screening test. 
you know, it's been used for years. I think it should continue to be used, but it's not sensitive enough to pick up the prostate cancers that we really want to identify. And that's why I think this layering concept, much like what we've seen with advanced prostate cancer, you know, when, when I train, if you had metastatic prostate cancer, you either did an orchiectomy, you know, the removal of the testicles, or you gave people injections to fool the body to shut down the production of testosterone. Well, you know, in 2023, patients with metastatic prostate cancer don't get just hormone injections or orchiectomy. We now are layering, you know, drugs like enzalutamide or apiridarone or a variety of these newer androgen receptor agents to help with prostate cancer. And, and when you look at the data, there's no question that this layering or this combination of different treatments is much more effective. And I think it's now spilling into, you know, diagnostic testing, that we're using this layering to try to enhance our ability to pick up prostate cancer. And just out of curiosity, I mean, a patient that has elevated the score, if you do a biopsy, have you had patients that have negative biopsies? Sure. I've had patients that have, again, this is not 100% foolproof, but the higher the exosome score the higher the likelihood of detecting prostate cancer. So if you have an exosome score that's 20 and you compare it to a patient that has an exosome score of 55, there's a difference. About 55% of those guys in that upper group are going to have prostate cancer versus 20% of patients in that other group. So 80 patients, if I have 100 patients, will have no prostate cancer whatsoever. But what we're trying to identify, much like what the genomic markers do, try to identify the wolf in sheep's clothing. Is that patient a candidate for active surveillance? This test helps us identify those patients at a higher risk. All of these tools are sort of risk assessment tools. You know, we've, we've now, you know, branched out from, do you have prostate cancer or not, to try to assess the risk. If you have low-grade prostate cancer and low risk, you know, more likely than not, you don't need to do anything. That's where this evolution in over you know, my 34 years of practicing, I've really seen this change. And like everything else, you know, things change. I mean, when, when I first finished my residency and did my fellowship in St. Louis, we were still doing ureterolithotomies, making an incision in the ureter to take a stone out. I mean, we wouldn't think of that today in 2023. We, we have scopes that are small, lasers, you know, shock waves. I mean, you know, that's the beauty of what we do. You know, there's this evolution of technology and, you know, these biomarkers and MRIs are, are just evolutions of different technologies to make us better at detecting, you know, different diseases. Exactly. So Dave, I think you already summed it up, but anything else you want to add? To me, the takeaway message is be smart, get screened. If you're in a high risk group where you have a family history, get screened, you know, at age 40 to 45. If you don't, if you're not a high-risk group, you can get screened at age 55, but the bottom line is get screened. If What you don't know is ignorance is not bliss. You know, if you have prostate cancer and you're diagnosed with it, you don't necessarily need to get treated. Almost 50% of patients that are diagnosed today don't need to get treated. We can follow them. And that's very unique to prostate cancer. I can't think of a single disease state in which you follow these. And early on, many patients were essentially bewildered that you would come in and I'd say, Jose, we know we've diagnosed prostate cancer, but we're not going to do anything. 
and people didn't understand that concept. They now understand it. And so the takeaway message is, you know, have a share, have a discussion with your physician, share decision-making, you know, each case is individualized. And, you know, we're getting more towards personalized medicine. All of these tests in some ways are, I, you know, ways of, of personalizing your medical care. And one shoe doesn't fit everybody anymore. I think get screened. And if you need to get a biopsy, there are tests. The exosome is a perfect example that you may prevent, you know, 30% of patients from getting a, a biopsy that's not necessary. So, you know, it's, it's been a, a great profession. I've enjoyed, I've had a, a, an amazing career. I've seen so many great changes. You know, I wish I could do it all over again, but I'm getting old and, you know, the younger guys are coming through and, you know, they're facile with the robot. I think that my early days when I did a robotic prostatectomy at Duke, my first one took me eight and a half hours. Think of it, eight and a half hours to take a prostate out, you know, and I could do an open prostatectomy in, you know, an hour and a half. I mean, today I can do a robotic prostatectomy in an hour, you know, 30 minutes or so. And the results are really terrific. So it's great to be a physician. It's great to be a urologist. And, you know, the beauty of what we do is we really see how we impact our patients. And, you know, there are tests out there that really help us do our job much, much better. Excellent. Well said. So thank you, Dr. David Albala, to uh, being in Backtable. Thanks so much. Have a great day. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz, with support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.